This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Francisca. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 4, Chapter 3. This is no mortal business, nor no sound that the earth owes. Shakespeare. We now return to the mention of Montoni, whose rage and disappointment were soon lost in nearer interest than any which the unhappy Emily had awakened. His depredations, having exceeded their usual limits, and reached an extent at which neither the timidity of the then commercial senate of Venice, nor the hope of his occasional assistance would permit them to connive, the same effort, it was resolved, should complete the suppression of his power and the correction of his outrages. While a corps of considerable strength was upon the point of receiving orders to march for Udolpho, a young officer, prompted partly by resentment for some injury received from Antoni, and partly by the hope of distinction, solicited an interview with the minister who directed the enterprise. To him he represented that the situation of Udolpho rendered it too strong to be taken by open force, except after some tedious operations that montoni had lately shown how capable he was of adding to its strength all the advantages which could be derived from the skill of a commander that so considerable a body of troops as that allotted to the expedition could not approach udolpho without its knowledge and that it was not for the honour of the republic to have a large part of its regular force employed for such a time as the siege of udolpho would require upon the attack of a handful of banditti the object of the expedition, he thought, might be accomplished much more safely and speedily by mingling contrivance with force. It was possible to meet Montoni and his party without their walls, and to attack them then, or by approaching the fortress, with the secrecy consistent with a march of smaller bodies of troops, to take advantage either of the treachery or negligence of some of his party, and to rush unexpectedly upon the whole, even in the castle of Udolpho. This advice was seriously attended to, and the officer who gave it received the command of the troops, demanded for his purpose. His first efforts were accordingly those of contrivance alone. In the neighbourhood of Udolpho he waited till he had secured the assistance of several of the condottieri, of whom he found none that he addressed unwilling to punish the imperious master and to secure their own pardon from the senate. He learned also the number of Montoni's troops, and that it had been much increased since his late successes. The conclusion of his plan was soon effected. Having returned with his party, who received the watchword and other assistance from their friends within, Montoni and his officers were surprised by one division, who had been directed to their apartment, while the other maintained the slight combat, which preceded the surrender of the whole garrison. Among the persons seized with Montoni was Orsino, the assassin, who had joined him on his first arrival at Udolpho, and whose concealment had been made known to the Senate by Count Morano, after the unsuccessful attempt of the latter to carry off Emily. It was indeed partly for the purpose of capturing this man, by whom one of the Senate had been murdered, that the expedition was undertaken, and its success was so acceptable to them that Morano was instantly released, notwithstanding the political suspicions which Montoni, by his secret accusation, had excited against him. The celerity and ease with which this whole transaction was completed prevented it from attracting curiosity, 
or even from obtaining a place in any of the published records of that time, so that Emily, who remained in Languedoc, was ignorant of the defeat and signal humiliation of the late persecutor. Her mind was now occupied with sufferings which no effort of reason had yet been able to control. Count de Villefort, who sincerely attempted whatever benevolence he could suggest for softening them, sometimes allowed her the solitude she wished for, sometimes led her into friendly parties and constantly protected her, as much as possible, from the shrewd inquiries and critical conversation of the countess. He often invited her to make excursions with him and his daughter, during which he conversed entirely on questions suitable to her taste, without appearing to consult it, and thus endeavoured gradually to withdraw her from the subject of her grief and to wake other interests in her mind. Emily, to whom he appeared as the enlightened friend and protector of her youth, soon felt for him the tender affection of a daughter, and her heart expended to her young friend Blanche as to a sister, whose kindness and simplicity compensated for the want of her more brilliant qualities. It was long before she could sufficiently abstract her mind from Valancourt to listen to the story promised by old Dorothy, concerning which her curiosity had once been so deeply interested. But Dorothy at length reminded her of it, and Emily desired that she would come that night to her chamber. Still her thoughts were employed by considerations which weakened her curiosity, and Dorothy's tap at the door soon after twelve surprised her almost as much as if it had not been appointed. "'I'm come at last, lady,' said she. "'I wonder what it is makes my old limbs shape so to-night. I thought once or twice I should have dropped as I was a-coming.' Emily seated her in a chair and desired that she would compose her spirits before she entered upon the subject that brought her thither. "'Alas!' said Dorothy, "'it is thinking of that, I believe, which has disturbed me so.' In my way hitherto I passed the chamber where my dear lady died, and everything was so still and gloomy about me, that I almost fancied I saw her as she appeared upon her deathbed. Emily now drew her chair near to Dorothy, who went on. It is about twenty years since my lady marchioness came a bride to the chateau. Oh, I will remember how she looked, when she came into the great hall where we servants were all assembled to welcome her and how happy my lord the marquis seemed ah who would have thought then but as i was saying mademoiselle i thought the marchioness with all her sweet looks did not look happy at heart and so i told my husband and he said it was all fancy so i said no more but i made my remarks for all that my lady marchioness was then about your age and as i have often thought very like you well, my lord the Marquis kept open house for a long time and gave such entertainments, and there were such gay doings as have never been in the chateau since. I was younger, mademoiselle, then than I am now, and was as gay as the best of them. I remember I danced with Philip the butler in a pink gown with yellow ribbons and a coif not such as they wear now, but plated high with ribbons all about it. It was very becoming, truly. My lord the Marquis noticed me. Ah, he was a good-natured gentleman, then. Who would have thought that he— But the Marchioness, Dorothy, said Emily, you was telling me of her. Oh, yes, my lady Marchioness, I thought she did not seem happy at heart, and once, soon after the marriage, I caught her crying in her chamber. But when she saw me, she dried her eyes and pretended to smile. I did not dare then to ask what was the matter, 
but the next time I saw her crying I did, and she seemed displeased, so I said no more. I found out some time after how it was. Her father, it seems, had commanded her to marry my lord, the Marquis, for his money, and there was another nobleman, or else a chevalier, that she liked better, and that was very fond of her, and she fretted for the loss of him, I fancy, but she never told me so. My lady always tried to conceal her tears from the Marquis, for I have often seen her, after she has been so sorrowful, look so calm and sweet when he came into the room. But my lord all of a sudden grew gloomy and fretful, and very unkind sometimes to my lady. This afflicted her very much, as I saw, for she never complained, and she used to try so sweetly to oblige him and to bring him into a good humour, that my heart has often ached to see it. But he used to be stubborn and give her harsh answers, and then when she found it all in vain she would go to her own room and cry so. I used to hear her in the ante-room, poor dear lady but I seldom ventured to go to her. I used sometimes to think my lord was jealous. To be sure my lady was greatly admired, but she was too good to deserve suspicion. Among the many chevaliers that visited the chateau, there was one that I always thought seemed just suited for my lady. He was so courteous, yet so spirited, and there was such a grace, as it were, in all he did or said. I always observed that, Whenever he had been there, the Marquis was more gloomy, and my lady more thoughtful, and it came into my head that this was the chevalier she ought to have married, but I never could learn for certain. "'What was the chevalier's name, Dorothy?' said Emily. "'Why, that I will not tell even to you, mademoiselle, for evil may come of it. I once heard from a person who is since dead that the marchioness was not in law the wife of the marquis for that she had before been privately married to the gentleman she was so much attached to and was afterwards afraid to own it to her father who was a very stern man but this seems very unlikely and i never gave much faith to it as i was saying the marquis was most out of humour as i thought when the chevalier I spoke of had been at the chateau and at last his ill-treatment of my lady made her quite miserable he would see hardly any visitors at the castle, and made her live almost by herself. I was a constant attendant, and saw all she suffered, but still she never complained. After matters had gone on thus for near a year, my lady was taken ill, and I thought her long fretting had made her so. But alas, I fear it was worse than that. Worse, Dorothy, said Emily, can that be possible? I fear it was so, madam. There were strange appearances, but I will only tell what happened. My lord, the Marquis, hush, Dorothy, what sounds were those? said Emily. Dorothy changed countenance, and, while they both listened, they heard on the stillness of the night music of uncommon sweetness. I have surely heard that voice before, said Emily at length. I have often heard it, and at this same hour, said Dorothy solemnly, and if spirits ever bring music, that is surely the music of one. Emily, as the sounds drew nearer, knew them to be the same she had formerly heard at the time of her father's death, and whether it was the remembrance that now revived of that melancholy event, or that she was struck with a superstitious awe, it is certain that she was so much affected that she had nearly fainted. "'I think I once told you, madam,' said Dorothy, "'that I first heard this music soon after my lady's death. I well remember the night.' "'Hark! it comes again,' said Emily. "'Let us open the window and listen.' They did so, but soon the sounds floated gradually away into distance, and all was again still. 
they seemed to have sunk among the woods whose tufted tops were visible upon the clear horizon while every other feature of the scene was involved in the nightshade which however allowed the eye an indistinct view of some objects in the garden below as emily leaned on the window gazing with a kind of thrilling awe upon the obscurity beneath and then upon the cloudless arch above enlightened only by the stars dorothy in a low voice resumed her narrative i was saying mademoiselle that i well remember when first i heard that music it was one night soon after my lady's death that i had sat up later than usual and i don't know how it was but i had been thinking a great deal about my poor mistress and of the sad scene i had lately witnessed the chateau was quite still and i was in the chamber at a good distance from the rest of the servants and this with the mournful things i had been thinking of i suppose made me low-spirited for i felt very lonely and forlorn as it were and listened often wishing to hear a sound in the chateau for you know mademoiselle when one can hear people moving one does not so much mind about one's fears. But all the servants were gone to bed, and I sat thinking and thinking till I was almost afraid to look around the room, and my poor lady's countenance often came to my mind, such as I had seen her when she was dying, and once or twice I almost thought I saw her before me, when suddenly I heard such sweet music. It seemed just at my window, and I shall never forget what I felt, I had no power to move from my chair, but then, when I thought it was my dear lady's voice, the tears came to my eyes. I had often heard her sing in her lifetime, and to be sure she had a very fine voice. It had made me cry to hear her many a time, when she had sat in her aureole of an evening, playing upon her lute such sad songs, and singing so. Oh, it went to one's heart! I have listened in the antechamber for the hour together, and she would sometimes sit playing with the window open, when it was summer-time, till it was quite dark, and when I have gone in to shut it, she has hardly seemed to know what hour it was. But as I said, madam, continued Dorothy, when first I heard the music that came just now, I thought it was my late lady's, and I have often thought so again when I have heard it, as I have done at intervals ever since. Sometimes many months have gone by, but still it has returned. It is extraordinary, observed Emily, that no person has yet discovered the musician. Ay, mademoiselle, if it had been anything earthly, it would have been discovered long ago. But who could have courage to follow a spirit? And if they had, what good could it do? For spirits, you know, ma'am, can take any shape or no shape, and they will be here one minute and the next in quite a different place. Pray resume your story of the marchioness, said Emily, and acquaint me with the manner of her death. I will, ma'am, said Dorothy, but shall we leave the window? This cool air refreshes me, replied Emily, and I love to hear it creep along the woods and to look upon this dusky landscape. You were speaking of my lord the marquis when the music interrupted us. Yes, madam, my lord the marquis became more and more gloomy, and my lady grew worse and worse till— one night she was taken very ill indeed. I was called up, and when I came to her bedside, I was shocked to see her countenance. It was so changed. She looked piteously up at me, and desired I would call the Marquis again, for he was not yet come, and tell him she had something particular to say to him. At last he came, and he did, to be sure, seem very sorry to see her, 
but he said very little. My lady told him she felt herself to be dying and wished to speak with him alone, and then I left the room, but I shall never forget his look as I went. When I returned I ventured to remind my lord about sending for a doctor, for I suppose he had forgot to do so in his grief, but my lady said it was then too late. But my lord, so far from thinking so, seemed to think light of her disorder, till she was seized with such terrible pains. Oh, I never shall forget her shriek! My lord then sent off a man and horse for the doctor, and walked about the room and all over the chateau in the greatest distress, and I stayed by my dear lady and did what I could to ease her sufferings. She had intervals of ease, and in one of these she sent for my lord again. When he came I was going, but she desired I would not leave her. Oh, I shall never forget what the scene passed. I can hardly bear to think of it now. My lord was almost distracted, for my lady behaved with such goodness, and took such pains to comfort him, that, if he ever had suffered suspicion to enter his head, he must now have been convinced that he was wrong. And to be sure he did seem to be overwhelmed with the thought of his treatment of her, and this affected her so much that she fainted away. We then got my lord out of the room. He went into his library and threw himself on the floor, and there he stayed, and would hear no reason that was talked to him. When my lady recovered she inquired for him, but afterwards said she could not bear to see his grief, and desired we would let her die quietly. She died in my arms, mademoiselle, and she went off as peacefully as a child, for all the violence of her disorder was past. Dorothy paused and wept. Emily wept with her, for she was much affected by the goodness of the late marchioness and by the meek patience with which she had suffered. When the doctor came, resumed Dorothy, alas, he came too late. He appeared greatly shocked to see if, soon after her death, a frightful blackness spread all over her face. When he had sent the attendants out of the room, he asked me several odd questions about the marchioness, particularly concerning the manner in which she had been seized, and he often shook his head at my answers, and seemed to mean more than he chose to say. But I understood him too well. However, I kept my remarks to myself, and only told them to my husband, who bade me hold my tongue. Some of the other servants, however, suspected what I did, and strange reports were whispered about the neighbourhood but nobody dared to make any stir about them. When my lord heard that my lady was dead, he shut himself up and would see nobody but the doctor, who used to be with him alone, sometimes for an hour together, and after that the doctor never talked with me again about my lady. When she was buried in the church of the convent, at a little distance yonder, if the moon was up you might see the towers here, mademoiselle, all my lord's vassals followed the funeral, and there was not a dry eye among them, for she had done a deal of good among the poor. My lord the Marquis, I never saw anybody so melancholy as he was afterwards, and sometimes he would be in such fits of violence that we almost thought he had lost his senses. He did not stay long at the chateau, but joined his regiment, and, soon after, all the servants, except my husband and I, received notice to go, for my lord went to the wars. I never saw him after, for he would not return to the chateau, though it is such a fine place, and never finished those fine rooms he was building on the west side of it, and it has in a manner been shut up ever since, till my lord the count came here. The death of the marchioness appears extraordinary, said Emily, who was anxious to know more than she dared to ask. Yes, madam, 
replied Dorothy, it was extraordinary. I have told you all I saw, and you may easily guess what I think. I cannot say more, because I would not spread reports that might offend my lord the Count. You are very right, said Emily. Where did the Marquis die? In the north of France, I believe, Mademoiselle, replied Dorothy. I was very glad when I heard my lord the Count was coming, for this had been a sad desolate place these many years, and we had such strange noises sometimes after my lady's death that, as I told you before, my husband and I left it for a neighbouring cottage. And now, lady, I have told you all this sad history, and all my thoughts, and you have promised, you know, never to give the least hint about it. I have, said Emily, and I will be faithful to my promise, Dorothy. What you have told has interested me more than you can imagine. I only wish I could prevail upon you to tell the name of the chevalier whom you thought so deserving of the marchioness. Dorothy, however, steadily refused to do this, and then returned to the notice of Emily's likeness to the late marchioness. There is another picture of her, added she, hanging in the room of the suite which was shut up. It was drawn, as I have heard, before she was married, and is much more like you than the miniature. When Emily expressed a strong desire to see this, Dorothy replied that she did not like to open those rooms. But Emily reminded her that the Count had talked the other day of ordering them to be opened, of which Dorothy seemed to consider much, and then she owned that she should feel less, and if she went into them with Emily first, then otherwise, and at length promised to show the picture. The night was too far advanced, and Emily was too much affected by the narrative of the scenes which had passed in those apartments to wish to visit them at this hour, but she requested that Dorothy would return on the following night, when they were not likely to be observed, and conduct her thither. Besides her wish to examine the portrait, she felt a thrilling curiosity to see the chamber in which the marchioness had died, and which Dorothy had said remained with the bed and furniture, just as when the corpse was removed for interment. The solemn emotions which the expectation of viewing such a scene had awakened were in unison with the present tone of her mind, depressed by severe disappointment. Cheerful objects rather added to than removed this depression. But perhaps she yielded too much to her melancholy inclination, and imprudently lamented the misfortune which no virtue of her own could have taught her to avoid though no effort of reason could make her look unmoved upon the self-degradation of him whom she had once esteemed and loved. Dorothy promised to return on the following night with the keys of the chambers, and then wished Emily good repose and departed. Emily, however, continued at the window, musing upon the melancholy fate of the marchioness, and listening in awful expectation for a return of the music. But the stillness of the night remained long unbroken, except by the murmuring sounds of the woods, as they waved in the breeze, and then by the distant bell of the convent, striking one. She now withdrew from the window, and, as she sat at her bedside, indulging melancholy reveries, which the loneliness of the hour assisted, the stillness was suddenly interrupted, not by music, but by very uncommon sounds, that seemed to come either from the room adjoining her own, or from one below. The terrible catastrophe that had been related to her, together with the mysterious circumstances said to have since occurred in the chateau, had so much shocked her spirits, that she now sunk for a moment under the weakness of superstition. The sounds, however, did not return, and she retired to forget in sleep the disastrous story she had heard. 
End of Volume 4, Chapter 3